0: When you think about even your team of direct reports, I think a lot of people spend time getting individual leaders who are great at their role. I think the excellent CEOs spent even more time thinking about the dynamic between them. Solving for the psychology of the team, the dynamic of how they work together.
1: From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Carolyn Dewar, a senior partner in our Bay Area office. And today, I'm thrilled to speak with her and her two co-authors of the upcoming book, CEO Excellence, The Six Mindsets That Distinguish the Best CEOs from the Rest. Their book involved years of empirical research and hundreds of hours of interviews with 67 of the world's leading CEOs. During today's podcast, the first of two on this topic, we'll discuss some of the insights from their book, including some great stories from their interviews. You can learn more about the book by visiting mckinsey.com forward slash CEO Excellence. Also joining us today are Carolyn's co authors, Scott Keller, a senior partner in our Southern California office who co-leads our global CEO excellence practice with Carolyn, as well as Vic Melhotra, a senior partner in our New York office, who was also the chair of Our America's Region. Carolyn, Scott, and Vic, welcome. In your conversations with the 67 CEOs, six responsibilities emerged from your research, all of which are important. And in one sense, you related them to this notion of keeping six plates spinning simultaneously but you also used another interesting analogy related to the captain of a ship. Scott, can you just take us through that quickly? The analogy is more to one of
2: sailing. So if you're gonna be a sailor on the high seas, with a sailboat call it, you're gonna have to worry about a lot of different things at any given time. You're gonna have to worry about the sail trim, which is, you know, is the sail efficiently up against the wind. You're gonna have to worry about course made good, which is am I getting A to B correcting for wind and correcting for tide. You're gonna have to worry about boat balance. You're gonna have to worry about a number of things right? including your own conduct which is are you tipping into too much rum right um, but all these things have to be managed at the same time but depending on your environment depending on how big those waves are depending on what that wind is at different things are going to matter in some cases it's sail position in some cases it's actually how do we change course made good in the other cases it's like we got to keep the boat from tipping over here
1: Got it so what happens if you lose control of one of the elements in your conversations with CEOs did you discuss any examples of how they course-corrected when their allegorical boat was about to tip over. Carolyn, anything that comes to mind?
0: Sure. I, th- I think that almost every CEO has had those moments, right? And part of it is your ability to recover and learn. It's a learning process. And so giving yourself the grace that even as you go through your tenure in role, you're going to be learning and growing, and that's fine. I think if we take one example, the stakeholder one is an easy one, right? The the, Invariably, there will be a crisis. There will be a moment where you haven't managed your stakeholders well. They're being called, you know, calling for your company to pivot or, or upset about a decision that you've made. I think the lesson learned on that one is how do you, even in those moments, even in those moments of crisis, or it might be internal or other pieces, kind of elevate and keep your head above above the fray a little bit. And it's not that you're not deeply involved as a CEO and getting a team on it, making sure there's folks doing all the right things, but it's also incumbent upon you as a CEO not to get consumed by that and to keep that broader view and say, okay, yes, this crisis happened, yes, this thing, and I'm going to make it right, but I'm going to continue to see all the interrelated pieces and look forward on where do we need to go, what does that need to look like? And I think even in the recent pandemic, which for a lot of folks has been really disruptive, how do they make sure that's being managed while at the same time continuing to imagine the future for their company?
3: Vic, what's your perspective on this? I, I would see it more shown as, It isn't like one of these elements comes crashing down, but any one of these elements could be wobbly. And, you know, just to use an example, all of these CEOs were amazing in terms of setting direction for the company, having a bold perspective, a bold vision. But invariably, in that journey, things are going to go wrong, right? So Ajay Banga, the CEO of Mastercard, talks about the fact that he made an acquisition, and it was a complete flop, right? And so you can then you know, say woe is me and go down a tailspin, or you can kind of fess up and say, that didn't work, let me quickly course correct. And so you, you'll have wobbles, and the real question is how quickly do you deal with the wobble? And,
2: uh, and they're pretty darn good at dealing with the wobbles, is what it comes down to. And maybe another just quick example, Marilyn Houston shared with us a, a wonderful story where, um, wonderful in the end, fortunately for her, This was when Donald Trump was the president-elect, and he tweeted out while she was on a customer visit overseas, F-35 costs out of control, you know, American dollars are going to be spent better and taxpayers' money is going to be better spent, you know, when I take office, right? And the share price of Lockheed Martin tumbled, $4 billion in a day. So basically they did what anyone would do is they got in front of the press, they explained their situation, that they are looking after costs, they're doing their best, they're gonna meet with the president, et cetera, et cetera. So she met with the president uh, when she got back and she thought she had everything sorted with him because she explained the cost, she said, I'm gonna give you my personal guarantee that we're gonna keep costs down. And she thought, good, sure enough, another tweet. I've asked Boeing to price out the Super Hornet um, against the F-35 whose costs are out of control. And she's thinking to herself, didn't we just have that? I thought we're good. And then she got her trusted advisors together, and they just took stock. What's going on here? And what they did is they they realized they were thinking about it through the lens of the Trump administration. They weren't putting themselves in his shoes in this case. What's he trying to do with this? Is he really trying to attack the F-35 program, or is he trying to send a message to taxpayers that your money's going to be well spent and I'm going to be focused on defense? Well, if that's what he's doing, we want him to be focused on defense. And we want their taxpayer money to be spent well. How do we get on the same page with him in that messaging? And then another meeting happened. In fact, there were headlines after that. You know, Marilyn Houston turns Trump from foe to friend. And he commented on her deal-making capability in a positive way, which for the, the guy who wrote The Art of the Deal is a pretty big compliment. And so that's just another example of start with why. Start with why. Put myself in their shoes.
1: Uh, It sounds from these stories that resilience is also a crucial characteristic for these successful CEOs. Carolyn, can you just lay out what role resilience plays within the six mindsets that you lay out in the book?
0: It's funny. I I find it hard to separate resilience from servant leadership as well. I think they're they're mixed (laughs) because I was struck by the number of most of the CEOs that we spoke to, they didn't grow up sort of in... A life of you know, ultimate privilege, right? Many of them never imagined themselves to be a CEO. And in fact, some of them started on the shoproom floor or in, you know, the front line of their organization and worked their way up. And so I think the resilience and the grit started early, right? And if anything, maybe that's why they became CEO as opposed to something that they just developed once they were there. Uh, and it was mixed very much with a humility right, on I'm here to serve the organization, I'm here to serve the customers that we're fulfilling their needs. And I think those two go together, right? If you're grounded in the purpose of your organization, what you're trying to achieve, it just gives you energy and strength to navigate the storms, right, and to and to manage through those wobbling plates, and also the humility to know that you don't know everything. And in those moments of crisis, are you reaching out for help? Are you learning? So I think those character qualities are mixed together And in my mind, at least, quite different from what you might expect of the sort of charismatic, I know everything CEO, you know, that that might be the popular myth.
1: Scott, uh, let's turn to you. Many CEOs leaned heavily on advice from their boards to help them manage through the COVID pandemic. Can you share how the best CEOs approach board engagement in your experience, especially in navigating crises and if you could share any interesting anecdotes uh, from your interviews, that would be great.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the differentiating mindsets that the great CEOs have towards their boards is instead of a mindset that says, I need to manage the board or the board's kind of a, you know, a necessary evil in my life or something like that, they actually think, no, 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 this is an incredible resource which is actually quite inexpensive for me to tap the wisdom of. And so my role is to help the board help the business. And so whether it's in times of crisis or not, I mean, a time of crisis example would be um, Ken Chenault at American Express, where he talked about the advice the board gave him during the global financial crisis of 2009, 2010, drawing on that expertise. But the reason that expertise was there to draw on to begin with is a thoughtfulness around the board composition. So great CEOs start to think about, here's the big, bold strategy I have. Do we have the right composition of the board to be helpful in that regard? And they work with their lead director. They work with their chairperson. And over time, they evolve their board. And, you know, the best time to fix a roof is while the sun's shining, right? So you actually, by the, when a crisis comes, you have a cybersecurity expert you can lean on or you have an expert in China who you can lean on or whatever it might be. So I would say that's kind of the spirit underneath uh, how... People use their board, and and one differentiator for uh,
3: the CEOs we interviewed relative to what we see as a very significant pattern with most CEOs, most CEOs are about how do I how do I get through my board meetings? How do I minimise the time? Let me make sure they've got enough information, but not too much. You know, it's kind of that mindset of I just got to kind of manage my way through it, right? As opposed to. This is an amazing resource. And and this is this. So, there's a quite a stark difference between these 67 CEOs and their embrace of the board as a valuable resource, someone they can lean on, someone where there's expertise and trust. And uh, Andrew Wilson uh, from Electronic Arts had a great quote where he said, It's something along the lines of, if you have a great board, you can get some really great perspectives that you just cannot get anywhere else, right? And they can provide that perspective in a moment of crisis or in a moment of opportunity. So this is not just a crisis issue. In the moments of opportunity, when you're thinking about that next S-curve in your strategy, they can be be there for you. And uh, I, I would say that this was perhaps the dimension where you'd see a real bifurcation between the excellent CEOs and the ones that are perhaps a little less excellent, that they 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 use the boards quite differently.
2: Well, Sean, maybe just to pick up a link between those two questions, because you kind of asked about resilience and then you asked about how boards played into it. And I guess I do think resilience, personal resilience, also stems from having a few other things in place. So one is you do have a kitchen cabinet, so to speak. If we go back to Andrew Jackson's kind of, you know, the, the group that met in the kitchen instead of the formal cabinet that he had to give him the real scoop. That kitchen cabinet is often a source of just unfiltered truth, right? And and is helpful in the resilience chamber in terms of you kind of know what people are thinking, even though they're not necessarily telling it to you. So you're going to be less surprised. You can act on it early. You can, you know, whispers before screams type stuff. There's also, you know, in the scheme of personal resilience, a focus on I do need to have a functioning family life and spouse, if that's in my life. But they tend to that in a way that they can sort of have that balance in their life, right? And they might even choose the neighborhood they live in to be a neighborhood that keeps them a little more grounded. But it's sort of like a a resilience-building thing. And the last thing, and I'm going to share this, it's that there were CEOs who said, look, my faith, my faith in God is what gives me a strength. Uh, It gives me a foundation. It gives me a, a perspective that helps me not get caught up in the role, you know, and... Some of the CEOs talk about how they, they come into their office and they look at the chair and they say, people are going to talk to that chair today. They're not going to be talking to me as a person. I need to sit in that chair and I need to do the right thing, but I'm, I, don't need to, I can't mistake the two, right? And I can't wear everything that that chair needs to wear
1: personally. Thank you, Scott. Um, in the section of the book where you talk about mobilizing their leadership team, you say, imagine how hard physics would be to study if particles could think. How do the successful CEOs get the independent, high-performing leaders on their team to all coalesce around a key idea, theme, um, priority, a direction, a purpose? Because ultimately, with a diverse leadership group, you often get a diversity of opinions and diversity of ideas. Carolyn, do you want to take a a cut at that?
0: When you think about even your team of direct reports, I think a lot of people spend time getting individual leaders who are great at their role. I think the excellent CEOs spent even more time thinking about the dynamic between them. What is it solving for the psychology of the team, the dynamic of how they work together? You know, the classic story I know you love to tell is the, um, the men's Olympic basketball team. Bunch of great players on it right? And in their early prep for the Olympics, I mean, truly the greats of the world, they lost their first scrimmage game against a college team. Now, the coach saw that it was about to happen. He saw that they weren't gelling as a team, and he literally had the greats of the sport all together out there on the court. And he let them fail, And he didn't intervene, he didn't fix it, he didn't help them win. He let them fail because he recognized that part of managing the psychology of that team is to have that team of truly greats realize that they were only gonna win if they worked together. He needed them to have that moment of humility, that moment of realizing that they're gonna need to work differently and have a dynamic between them. And I think we've seen the same with CEOs, right? Really investing genuinely in the operating model of the team. How do we make decisions? How do we show up for one another? What do we spend our time on? And I think lots of tips and hints and tricks on doing that, right? To make it a safe environment to disagree, but also decide and move on. Everyone had their own kind of micro habits, um, but everyone to a T recognized it was a key part of their job.
2: I think in some ways, this is a, a function of you get in the role and you recognize very quickly that you're not actually running a business. You're not actually doing anything. You've literally lifted up a level. And you now, Satya Neladella talked about um, how the job is lonely at that level because no one who reports to you sees what you see and no one you report to sees what you see. I think you realize that when you, you, you know, your leverage comes not just from the individuals in these roles, but you're running the firm. And so you actually need people in these roles to be one firm players. You need, And it was incredible how often we heard the word, you know, one Lockheed Martin, Team Caterpillar, the, the Atlas Copco nationality, all these kind of ways of talking about your first team is the top team. There is no escaping that if you're working for one of the greatest CEOs. And they're going imp- to impart that psychology in all sorts of different ways. I love the way... Um, Lilac Asher Topilski, who late leads the Israeli discount bank, or did? She's retired now. She talked about like my team. We were the fist. We knew that no a one tight was fist, could, a tight <laughs> fist. Yeah, it was like, and no one's gonna get between the cracks between the fingers. Because it all starts here with us as the fifth. In that visual, that's her managing the psychology of the team where everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to be the, the fist. That's good. And I think CEOs in that role, in that lonely role, start to think about, okay, I'm going to find ways and they're going to look for opportunities and be present in the moment to take opportunities to shape the psychology of the team, to coach the team, to, to remind them that this is where it starts and we are one team all managing the firm. Because I can't do it alone. You know, I remember Bill George saying, like, I needed my team to be enterprise leaders. That was his term for one team because I needed their help, you know, but they can't help if they're just running their own business.
3: The one nuance I would add here, though, is the team is incredibly important. Your ability to motivate the team is incredibly important. Your ability to reach down deep in the organization and motivate others, your ability to understand where value is created, and therefore, do you have the right people in those roles? Those are all incredibly important levers. But there are also things, we shouldn't confuse that with the great CEOs not owning certain things that are incredibly critical to the organization. So, direction setting, right? Obviously, lots of people have input into direction setting, right? But ultimately, this is something I, at least in the interviews we did, many of the CEOs owned. In many instances, they were part of a small group conceiving about where they wanted to go. When Satya Nadella wanted to push for the cloud, it wasn't like he had 300 people in the organization pounding the table saying, we're going to do that. When Ajay Banga said, we're going to go out there and cannibalize cash, because let's not think about Visa as the competitor, let's cannibalize cash. It wasn't like there were 100 people there, right? You know, these that's where the vision comes in. That's where the boldness comes in, which often requires that individual, perhaps with some support from a small team, maybe some advice and so on, getting there. But that isn't a bottoms-up effort, right? So we ought, to, we ought to distinguish between you empower and you create greatness in your team to go get things done. But that top-level direction setting, so key for the CEO to own.
0: I mean, building on that, you think about the quote from Ed Breen, right, who was a three-time CEO. He's now been CEO for 23 years um, at D- at DuPont and Tyco before that. He said there's 15 decisions he's made in his 23 years that really matter. I mean, of course, you make decisions every day, but at least in 15 moments, it was a decision that only he could make as the CEO. And frankly, he was out there ahead of the organization saying, no, this is where we're going to go. Um, and those are incredibly value-creating pivots when you get them right.
2: They don't just tell people that's yeah, where we're going I and expect them that. to follow. Yeah, yeah. So there is a, they don't have degrees in this, but, you know, the, the psychologists do experiments that point to the methods that these CEOs right. use. So an example experiment, which some people may have heard, but it's basically researchers get a large group of people into a room and they say, we're going to run a lottery. And so here's your lottery ticket. In half the room, they give a lottery ticket that has a number on it, like any lottery ticket would. The other half of the room, they give a blank piece of paper. And they say, write your number between 1 and X, and that's going to be your lottery ticket number. And they give them a pen, too. So Then they go up to pull the winning ticket, and they say, wait, time out. We're going to give you a chance to sell us back your lottery ticket. The question they're trying to ask is, how much more do you have to pay that group who wrote their own number versus that group who were handed a number? Now most people will say, well, probably that group who wrote their own number, because they're somehow emotionally attached. And that is true, right? By the way, an economic rationalist will tell you there is no higher probability of winning. So that is, yeah, exactly. that is irrational, yeah. first right. of all. And there's probably more duplicates on this side, so actually have a less chance, so they should be split less attached. The
0: winnings. Right. Yeah. So
2: but you know, people get the human side of it. I think the most interesting question is, yeah, but by how much? And most people are genuinely surprised to hear. They've never found in any of these experiments they've done, and many have been done. We've, we looked at them for some other research. They've never found less than five times more on average is how much you have to pay this group who wrote their own number on that lottery ticket. Five times more. So the idea is that even if you know the answer, you know the lottery ticket number, or whatever, the, like letting people feel like they have some opportunity to give input into that. And what a lot of CEOs find is I had a I had a good picture of where we wanted to go. I then opened it up to the team to kind of think about in the context of where I think we're headed. What do you think, give us feedback, let's make us better. But it wasn't just opening it up on where we're gonna take the company. It was no, no, we're gonna kill cash, but what do you think of that and how would that work? And they actually find it gives them a better answer to open that up and it builds that ownership. And then they'll open that up to like, let's, let's get the top 300 involved. And the question is less about write your own lottery ticket around whether kill cash is a good idea as a strategy for MasterCard. It's write your own lottery ticket around, what's your role in helping us kill cash? And again, ownership, ownership, ownership. And that allows you to then mobilize an organization, back to your point before, which we should credit Murray Gelman for the quote, the Nobel laureate physicist for that, You know, imagine how hard physics would be if particles could think. These are some of the methods that CEOs use to kind of break through that challenge, right?
1: This was awesome. I just want to say what a pleasure it was. Um, Thank you, Scott, Carolyn, and Vic, for joining us today on Inside the Strategy Room. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this first part of our discussion on the mindsets and practices of the world's most successful CEOs. In our second and final part, we'll discuss how the pandemic has revitalized certain aspects of the CEO role and some of the author's personal takeaways from their extensive CEO interviews. CEO Excellence publishes on March 15th and will include a link to the book website at mckinsey.com forward slash CEO Excellence. We'll also include the link in the show notes for today's episode. As always, we'll share a transcript of this conversation on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at McKinsey.com I-T-S-R, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at inside the strategy room at McKinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page, again, at McKinsey.com ITSR. You could follow us on Twitter at mckstrategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the strategy room.